Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Keith Holland, who located and excavated the steamship Maple Leaf, which was sunk by a Confederate mine in the St. Johns River. He struck that directly under the hull, approximately at the foremast, and it imploded a huge hole into the bow of the boat. We'll explore the handwritten 19th century memoir of David Watt. This is uh, one of those rare collections, the first-hand accounts of what it was like to live in Florida prior to the uh, beginnings of, of modern civilization, prior to the early development in the 20th century. And we'll discuss the play A Vote, A Voice that looks at civil rights history in Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. At 4 a.m. on April 1, 1864, an explosion disrupted the still waters of the St. Johns River as a Confederate mine ripped through the hull of the steamship Maple Leaf. The ship was transporting Union supplies during the Civil War. Keith Holland founded St. John's Archaeological Expeditions Incorporated to discover and excavate the Maple Leaf. It was participating in the Southeast Atlantic blockade as a troop transport. And after the Battle of Olusti, which was a major defeat, all troops were called from surrounding areas, especially Charleston, to come to Jacksonville immediately. They had camped on Folly Island, an entire brigade, for about 20 months. And so it took the quartermasters approximately a month to break down that entire camp, load up all the thousands of soldiers, personal effects into boxes. They were all placed into the maple leaf and she was bringing um, those supplies to the 112th New York, 169th, the um, 13th Indiana and Brigadier General Foster's Brigade Headquarters equipment to them. Before she was able to unload the deck, she was ordered to go to Palatka. She went to Palatka and never made it back to Jacksonville. The Confederate mine was about a yard wide. The center looked like a barrel, but tapered wooden points on both sides made it resemble a torpedo. They were ordered to travel at night with no lights. Only the binnacle light was allowed in the captain's and um, the pilot's house. It was a full moon, no wind. The river was as clear as the surface of a mirror and Romeo Murray, the pilot, was heading north. He, he saw nothing on the water, but there was an explosive contact, explosive mine submerged under the water. He struck that directly under the hull, approximately at the foremast, 
and it imploded a huge hole into the bow of the boat. The entire upper, the entire front deck caved in, the pilot house fell forward, the whistle struck and started to blow when the wire was stretched. The pilot turned the boat, and this is significant, and the real reason we're here, to get to the east bank. So when Maple Leaf settled after about five or six revolutions of the paddle wheel, she settled athwart the stream, 90 degrees to the stream. And that is what subsequently forced the Maple Leaf into this anaerobic environment quickly. When the Maple Leaf first sank to the bottom of the St. John's River, the upper portion of the ship was still visible. Except for the four men killed in the initial explosion, the crew was able to escape. Keith Holland. When it touched bottom, there was about two to three feet on the upper cabins of water, and the rest of it was above the water. All of the people on board, four people were killed. They were firemen. They were in the forecastle, which is the very front of the ship where the explosion occurred. Everybody was able to get in their life rafts, and um, the officer in charge said he thought it would be the better part of valor to get out of there before the Confederates approached. And then they spent that rest of the evening from 4 o'clock in the morning rowing to Jacksonville and arrived there about 8.30 in the morning. Keith Holland is a dentist by trade, but became so fascinated by the story of the Maple Leaf that he formed St. John's Archaeological Expeditions Incorporated to locate and excavate the ship. My journal shows that in 19, late 1983, I started doing an inventory of shipwrecks in and around Northeast Florida. And about mid-1984, I learned about Maple Leaf and a bubble popped into my mind carrying the idea looking at it through my scientific background, that if, it's, if this is true, then it will still be perfectly preserved. Holland was correct that the muddy bottom of the St. John's River encased the maple leaf in an anaerobic environment that kept the materials on board from deteriorating. Although we consider the materials excavated from the maple leaf to have great cultural significance, the artifacts lay undisturbed for more than 125 years. The reason Maple Leaf drifted back into history is that it was not a significant event. The war was about to end. It was just supplies and nobody really cared about it. It was an unfortunate event of war and there was a footnote and that's all. Before excavating or even locating the Maple Leaf shipwreck, Holland was able to determine that it would contain a wealth of cultural artifacts to recover. I finally got a document out of the archives. You know, we didn't have computers then, so I hired a researcher in the National Archives. I could not find any files on USS Maple Leaf, but I was too young and didn't realize that Maple Leaf wasn't a USS Maple Leaf, it was a quartermaster's. Turns out the owners who leased the boat to the United States of America sued the government several times all the way up to about 1886 um, or 89. And all those records were accumulated from the quartermasters and the Department of Army. And when the case was finally finished, they were deposited in the judicial branch of the archives. Reading those documents, I knew for a fact that the cargo hold was still there and significant. 800,000 pounds of an entire brigade would still be there.
Armed with the knowledge that the Maple Leaf contained literally tons of artifacts and knowing about where the shipwreck was located, Holland set out to find and excavate the ship. I was, spent a lot of time dragging a 1950 generator, um, hoping to catch on to something. I had a general idea of where it was. Eventually, I bought a boat-towed Pulse metal detector, and in dragging that, it caught onto something. My uh, brother-in-law, who was a scuba diver, um, dove down to untangle it, and sure enough, it was on a shrimp net that was attached to some huge metal items. We both went down and analyzed it and determined that that was in all probability the paddle wheel axle of the ship. It was the only thing really sticking up above the mud. And then I was elated to know that in fact I did find maple leaf, but at the same time I had a very depressing feeling because I realized she was beyond my reach. She, the main deck was buried under seven feet of St. John's River mud. This was going to take a very big deal to get to. Holland and his team were able to clear away enough mud to begin recovering artifacts from the maple leaf. Much of that material is on display for the first time at the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society in Jacksonville. When we selected these items, uh, I had not seen the material for 18 years because we shut down in 1996. It became a land National Historic Landmark in 94 and then we closed our company, sealed it back up and left in 96 when the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society asked us to participate in, in a Maple Leaf celebration, I gladly accepted. We went over to Tallahassee, and to my surprise, I found that there were some very unique, only in extent material that had never been exhibited. And so many of the things here have never been seen before until this event and all the rest of the stuff is primarily personal, cultural material related to the individuals. There's some military items, but most of it is about the individual, what games they played, how they traveled, what letters they wrote, um, pens, ink bottles, how they communicated, what dishes they carried from home, seashells that they collected while they were on Folly Island. All of this stuff came out of intact boxes with names stenciled on them. And the, we recovered about 4,500 items through a column that was approximately eight feet in diameter and 10 feet deep, which was the cargo hold depth, which we calculated to be 0.1% of the material that's still there. The Maple Leaf exhibit at the Mandarin Museum features personal artifacts from the crew, a detailed model of the ship, and a diving suit worn by one of the excavators. Also on permanent display is a replica of the mine that the Confederates placed in the St. John's River to successfully sink the Maple Leaf. The mines were a new instrument of warfare, and uh, the preferred mine was an electrically detonated mine. So they would take it out and they'd submerge it in the water and they'd have a wire going to a bank and the Confederate needed to be close by so he could detonate it deliberately. The one that Maple Leaf struck was uh, a contact detonator 
and they are indiscriminate. That contact detonator might go off while you and I are putting it in the water. Um, it has a plunger and it has uh, fulminated mercury in it. And then there's a layer of lead between that and another chemical compound. So when that little plunger punches a hole through that lead, the mercury just drips down into that other compound and produces a violent exothermic reaction that explodes the torpedo. Maple Leaf, to my knowledge, was the first ship to ever be sunk by a contact explosive. Holland hopes that people will enjoy seeing what has already been excavated and looks forward to other archaeologists and historians continuing his work to further our understanding of the lives of everyday people during the Civil War. Maple Leaf will be in that river in a perfect state of preservation forever. And slowly, military historians will lose their appeal of studying the military strategies and the armament and the, the battle man maneuvers. And we will see an, a, a insurgence of people wanting to know about people their ancestors. And Florida, let's face it, uh, is predominantly populated by northern immigrants. And one day Maple Leaf will be opened up again and there's just, it's a wonder what will be there. If you could picture me 24 feet underwater, cut off eight foot by four foot hole in a deck, tunneled 17 feet down in the bottom of the river, sitting on the bilge ceiling of a cargo ship knowing that it's got 800,000 pounds of people's daily effects, it's, there's no telling what Maple Leaf in, our, in the future will produce for students of all ages and what it will offer them to use the disciplines of the future, the modern technology. And it, will excite students about studying history, I believe. Keith Holland located and excavated the steamship Maple Leaf, which was sunk in the St. John's River by Confederate forces on April 1st, 1864. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to discover great books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Click the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. The story of my life, I'll take her
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here a handwritten 19th century memoir of David Watt. Yeah, that's right. And this is uh, one of those rare collections, the first-hand accounts of what it was like to live in Florida prior to the uh, beginnings of, of modern civilization, prior to the early development in the 20th century. Uh, this is kind of that period uh, after the American Civil War and before the roaring 1920s, when there was still quite a bit of, of wilderness throughout Florida and a lot of uh, open area that uh, a young man such as David Watt could uh, certainly find a lot of adventure in. Uh, and David Watt was actually an Englishman. Uh, he came to Florida in October of 1885, uh, with his father, mother, and his sister. His father was a retired congregational minister uh, who became an agent for Hamilton Diston. And Diston was, at that time, one of the largest landowners in Florida and was uh, building a, a large uh, agricultural plantation, if you will, and was draining a lot of the Everglades throughout South Florida. So his father uh, decided that this was his ticket out of uh, uh, out of England, and he decided to come to Florida and, and begin this, uh, this adventure. And he brought with him his young son, son, David Watt. Uh, and David Watt, like many of his uh, fellow uh, visitors to Florida, uh, he kept uh, copious notes. Uh, he wrote letters back home. Um, but what's great is that these original letters stayed with him until he was in his late 70s. Uh, and he decided to uh, then turn those letters into uh, a manuscript, into a memoir. Sometime in the 1920s, David Watt sat down uh, over the course of a couple of months uh, and turned his uh, original handwritten letters into a uh, somewhat fictionalized account of what life was like uh, on the frontier. Uh, and it was never published, but he entitled it Letty and Betty and Joe. Uh, and Letty, Betty, and Joe were the names of uh, three young girls uh, who were neighbors of his family when they first moved to uh, the area that is now known as uh, St. Petersburg on the Pinellas Peninsula in uh, the central Gulf Coast of Florida. The three girls really took a liking to him. They followed him around. He really got to watch them grow up uh, while he lived in St. Petersburg. So he named this manuscript after them. Now, life in St. Petersburg that he documented was uh, much different in the late 1800s than it is today. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And now, by this time, by the 1880s, the city of Tampa was still relatively small, but it was much more developed than uh, any of the area along the Pinellas uh, Peninsula that would become the city of St. Petersburg. Uh, in fact, in 1885, when David and his family first came to uh, the area, what would then become uh, St. Petersburg, uh, he describes the small log cabin uh, in this manuscript and, and what it first looked like. Uh, and it says here, uh, David began to examine the hut. He said in England he had read about log cabins and stories of the settlers and the trappers of America, but this one looked somewhat different from what he had expected. It was, an, in fact, quite an old one, and the logs were beginning to rot and sag down, and many of the pieces of planks used to stop up the chinks between the logs had fallen out. He had also noticed uh, that there were no windows in this log cabin because at that time it was very difficult. You know, there, were, there really was no infrastructure uh, and no way to transport these materials. So everything they had was manufactured on the frontier. In fact, he uh, talks about the mail. The mail boat uh, traveled from Tampa across Tampa Bay to uh, St. Pete uh, only twice a week. Uh, and that was on a lucky week. Uh, he mentions quite often the mailboat uh, couldn't make it, either to inclement weather or no wind, uh, so they would go weeks sometimes without any mail or any supplies. Uh, they had no cows, uh, so they had no fresh milk. Everything was 
made with, with powdered milk. Um, but they got by, and David and his family really began to thrive in this pioneer community. Uh, and David really, uh, you can tell through this manuscript and through the letters, that uh, he enjoyed that rough pioneer life as opposed to the uh, somewhat aristocratic lifestyle he had enjoyed back in England. Now, Watt calls this his memoir, but it really reads like a novel. Yeah, that's right, and this makes it uh, also very unique in that um, Watt decides to focus not only on the natural environment, which of course there's quite a bit about uh, the flora and fauna and alligators, trees and agriculture, things like that, but he's instead fascinated with the pioneer settlers themselves, with this ragtag community, uh, and it really is, kind of represents a melting pot of different people. In fact, he talks about the families from Kansas, from New Jersey, Key West, a number of uh, uh, fellow uh, of Englishmen who have come over across the pond uh, to Florida to try their luck at agriculture or what have you. Um, he also talks about a number of uh, former Confederates. Now remember, this is uh, just after the end of the American Civil War, and it's still fresh on the American psyche. And there were a lot of people who were directly involved in both sides of the conflict who were trying to uh, start their life anew. And, and uh, this area of Florida, this wilderness of Florida, kind of represented this new chapter for a lot of these people. Uh, so as I mentioned before, he uh, titled the uh, the manuscript after the three young girls who lived here. But uh, throughout the manuscript, he sprinkles in these wonderfully colorful anecdotes of uh, how people really survived. And again, it gives you a, a great sense of, of kind of how neighborly and uh, how rough, you know, it could be, but also how... Uh, reliant you were on your fellow pioneer just to get by. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Much of the civil rights history of Orlando is presented in a new play called A Vote, A Voice. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. As a director, um, I'm hoping that I've been able to deliver to the audience the writer's intent. Uh, by that I mean the writer who sat down, took the time to sit down to write the piece. That is what they, she or he, uh, explicitly wanted the audience to to share or to learn and to be entertained. Uh, so it's my job to take that from the paper and make it live. I, I think we succeeded in this in, in, in the respect that the response from both audiences uh, were, were delightful. That was Professor Anthony Major, Director of Africana Studies at the University of Central Florida. He directed a play written by State Senator Geraldine Thompson about the history of the African-American civil rights struggle in Central Florida. It ran in February of 2015. Professor Major tells me what the play was about. I recently directed a play called A Vote, A Voice, uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And we, it was performed at the uh, Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center. It was written and produced by Senator uh, Geraldine Thompson who had approached me some time ago and told me she had this play concerning history of Orlando. And uh, I thought it would be a unique project to work on. It would be a first 
uh, in this area to have a theatrical production commemorating uh, the history of Orlando. And so we put together this production and it went quite well. We had two performances uh, and both performances were sold out. Here, Professor Major tells me what he learned from the play. I, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, and I used to come to play Jones High School back in the day. But um, I had heard some of the things about, uh, of course, the Okoye riots and um, Harry T. Moore, uh, the bombing of the home and so forth. But a lot of other stuff about the history of Orlando and what went on when people were trying to vote. Um, I learned a lot about uh, the Wells-Built Museum. The other thing I learned a lot was the local heroes who, in, in light of them, the possibility of them getting hung or shot or whatever, who stood up for the voting rights in Orlando, who made sure that the citizens here had an equal opportunity to vote. Um, people like um, uh, Father Nelson Pender, uh, the lunch counters. Uh, Father Pender used to train youngsters to go and sit down at the lunch, lunch counters and how they couldn't get service here, you know, back in the day. And uh, Paul Perkins even. Uh, I know Mrs. Perkins, who used to own the Mancho bookstore here. Learning that these families had played, and I'm not calling them all here, but I mean, there was a whole list of almost like uh, 26 to 30 characters in the play, in the production. And all of them had a role to play and um, and made it happen. And I'm sure all of these towns have different people like that in them that took the initiative and risked their lives to make sure that uh, they, they had the right to vote. Professor Major talks to me about staging one of the more difficult scenes. Like one specific scene was a scene where there was the hanging of uh, July Perry. And so I showed on the video screen, on the projection uh, of a hanging, because I wanted the audience to really feel uh, what it's like or what it was like uh, during that period of time and what people went through. So the description of that hanging is there where they talked about how they cut off his fingers so he couldn't slap the chain, how they lit him on fire, how they uh, castrated him, how they lift him in the air. And there were 26,000 people cheering like at a football game. So... At the same time, I had the dancers acting out that while you watch that on the screen. And when the, it was over and the musical number was, was done, uh, and it was done to Strange Fruit uh, by Nina Simone. So as Nina Simone is talking and singing about, you know, a hanging and what it's like, the dancers acting it out in the visuals together, it was a powerful moment. That was Professor Anthony Major, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.